and that you will open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Lord, we confess that often we can read your word and come away confused. A veil still seems to be over our heart, clouds our sight. But when God the Spirit clears our view, how bright the doctrines shine. Their light and glory clearly prove the author is divine. So wherever mortal man may be, whatever now he seeks, Lord, you have an answer for his needs. And in your word you speak. Speak to us today, we pray. And may we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. It was in 1994 that uh, President Ronald Reagan and Nancy were at their ranch in California, and uh, they were being, they were somewhat uncomfortable enduring an interview by persistent questions from the media. And it was during the time when the Americans and the Soviets were trying to pull back on the arms race and reduce weapons of mass destruction. And so that question was poised to President Reagan, standing in his jeans casually at his ranch. And he hesitated and paused and seemed to didn't come up, didn't have an answer immediately. And under her breath, Nancy Reagan was heard to say, just tell them we're doing everything we can. And immediately the president said, we're doing everything we can. Well, it sounded very much like she was prompting him that, that maybe he didn't quite know what to say. And the question was, who is in charge? Uh, the reporters took this and ran with it, of course, and Nancy was quite upset. She said, no, no, I wasn't trying to prompt him. I often speak to myself under my breath. I was surprised he heard me. Uh, must have been his good ear, or he had that uh, device turned up. She said, I didn't expect him to hear me, but the whole world heard her because it was on the news, and it looked very much like she was telling him what to do, but that really wasn't the case. The media said, who's in charge? Well, I have the utmost respect for President Reagan, and I think he indeed was in charge. But that's a good question. When you think about government and leaders, who's in charge? When you think about any organization, who's in charge? And when you ask the question in a religious context, it is of vital and eternal importance. Who's in charge? And that becomes the question that is asked in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. So let me encourage you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark and the 11th chapter. Now we have already noticed in the 11th chapter what is commonly called the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. For the last week of his life, that is before he's crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. So this Passion Week, the last week, is an exciting week. On Sunday, he came riding on a donkey into Jerusalem with shouts of hallelujah ringing in his ears. And then he went home. That is, he went back to Bethany, the other side of the Mount of Olives, to rest for the night. Came back in on Monday, and what did he do? 
cleanse the temple. Remember that? The, the flipping over the tables and the killing of the fig tree, which was an indictment on Israel, and <clears throat> he did all of that and then appears to go home again at night, back to Bethany, where he's staying, and then comes back in on Tuesday. Tuesday is a day in which he has <clears throat> multiple confrontations with the religious leaders. We already noticed one of those. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or no? Wednesday appears to be something of a day of rest. It's difficult to know if anything happened on that day. Thursday was preparation for the Passover. Friday was crucifixion and trial, Good Friday. Saturday, resting in the tomb, and Sunday, the resurrection. That's that last week, that dynamic week. So we're on Tuesday when Jesus goes back to the temple now, into the temple, the temple that he's already cleansed. And he's going to have some interchanges, some interaction with the religious leaders of that day. And actually, it's a Q&A time. Multiple questions are brought to the Savior. So we read in chapter 11, Mark, verse 27. They arrived again Tuesday morning in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts. Let's stop there just for a moment and flash up this picture that is a wonderful model of the Jerusalem temple of Jesus' day. Now, there are multiple courts. The largest court that actually centers around the temple is that court of the Gentiles where all of this kind of thing took place. Now, on the southern end, which is the top of the picture, you have what is called Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. And it is an amazing arcade, an amazing place of columns, six feet in diameter, and somewhere around 35 to 40 feet high, Corinthian columns. And there are 162 of them with a roof on the top. Now, many ancient cities had places like this to protect from the weather. In this area, they needed protection from the sun, but occasionally from the wind and occasionally from the rain. And this became the most popular place then to meet for classes, for teaching and instruction. Yeah, out in the uh, court area, they were selling the animals for sacrifice, and that's where Jesus turned over the ta tables. But now he's coming back to the place that he just cleansed and imagine the, the, uh, the hubbub that went on when Jesus walked in. There's the guy. You see what he did yesterday? Couldn't believe it. Lost all my money. And people were mad and many were astounded and confused and Jesus comes walking back in into Solomon's portico to teach. He's going to do a lot of teaching in this area this week and some amazing sermons are going to be delivered. But now in verse 27 we read, while he's walking in the temple courts, probably in the porch, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders come to him. These three groups make up the ruling body of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. They are the ones who are in charge. They are the ones whose authority is being questioned and challenged by this young upstart from Galilee. 
this guy who calls himself Messiah, but whose parents we know, who's only a carpenter. And so they come to him in verse 28, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? That's an important question. This is a penetrating question. Whose authority? Where do you get your authority? Tell us. How come you're turning these tables over, indicting us? Where do you get your authority? Now, as guardians of the law, they had every right to ask that question. In fact, it was their responsibility. But remember, they were the ones who were the authorities, and they were somewhat upset that Jesus was challenging their authority. When Jesus rode on the donkey into Jerusalem on Sunday, he declared his authority when they quoted uh, portions of Scripture from Zechariah and Psalm 118. Here's the Messiah. His authority was declared by the people. Hallelujah. Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then when he cursed the fig tree and he turned over the tables, he demonstrated his authority. So not only were the people saying he has it, but he was claiming to have it. And now the leaders want to know, where are you getting this authority? Tell us. So it was an appropriate question. By the way, this theme followed Jesus wherever he went. All the way back to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Jesus taught in the synagogue of Capernaum, and the response in chapter 1, verse 22 was this. Where did this guy get this authority? He's not teaching like the scribes and Pharisees. He's teaching like one who knows what he's talking about. The scribes and Pharisees are always quoting other people, and you can kind of tell that although they're leaders, they don't have authority. This guy has authority. And then later on in that same scene, when he casts a demon out of one of the members of the congregation, they say, Where in the world did this guy get this kind of authority? Even the demons do what he tells them to do. And when the disciples are going across the sea in a boat and the waves and the wind get strong and Jesus wakes up and says, peace be still, or he's walking on the water and he says everything to quiet down, they're saying, where does this guy, who is this? Where does he get this kind of authority? So it was a common question. And they ask him, tell us, who gave you this authority? And I love the response of Jesus in verse 29. You see, now they were, again, trying to ask him a question that he really couldn't answer without getting in trouble. If he said, my authority comes from God, they could cry out, blasphemy. Or if he said, you know, I really don't have any authority, I'm just kind of doing this on my own, they would yell, rebel, rabble-rouser, and arrest him for causing a disturbance in God's house. If your authority comes from God, then why are you disrupting his worship in the temple? And if you don't have any authority, why are you stepping in and taking charge? It's a tough question. Jesus answers. By the way, in a very instructive way, you and I need to learn that when we're dealing with cynics and doubters, One of the best ways to answer their question is with a question. An insightful question that will begin to open up their heart. So Jesus says in verse 29, listen, 
Uh, I will ask you one question. You answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Remember John? John the Baptist? His baptism. Was it from heaven, or did it have a human origin? Tell me. What a fantastic question. And now they are put on the horns of a dilemma. Isn't that a great idiom, the horns of a dilemma? I did a little study on that and found out that apparently it came up in the 1600s. And, and you know, someone's fighting like a bull and doesn't know which side to take of the bull to take control, and he's got a problem because either side has a horn. And so it's a, it's a situation where both uh, possibilities are equally dangerous and undesirable. The horns of a dilemma. And now they're impaled on this question of Jesus. What about John? So they discuss it privately, verse 31. They say, well, among themselves, if we say it's from heaven, then he'll ask, how, didn't you, how come you didn't believe John? Remember, they would go out and they ridiculed John's baptism. More than that, Jesus starts out, or Mark starts out his gospel with a story about John's witness. Right away, he lays down the importance of the witness of John the Baptist. And John pointed to Jesus, right? Here's the guy, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. I was sent uh, to, to make the way straight and to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's the one. John pointed to him. The witness was clear. And so if they say, well, John's authority came from heaven, then they are approving the authority of Jesus because John said he was from heaven too. He's God the Messiah. But if they say, no, it's not from heaven, if, if it's human origin, and I like in verse 32, Mark doesn't even finish the question. If we say of human origin, ha, don't even want to think what will happen then. Because they feared the people. John had just been martyred, and his popularity had greatly increased. He was always a popular prophet, but now he was a hero prophet. He was a martyr prophet, and the people thought so well of John that even the religious leaders couldn't say anything negative. And so they said, verse 31, uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's all one word, isn't it? D-U-N-N-O, I don't know. That's what we often say when we know, but we don't want to acknowledge, right? It's very possible that this was just an out-and-out out lie. They knew, but didn't want to say. The answer would get them into big trouble, and so they're afraid. When faced with the truth, you and I are often fearful to acknowledge the truth, and so we plead ignorance. But in pleading ignorance, we only damage ourselves. If we would acknowledge that the truth convicts us, then there's hope, right? It's the person who says, I have a problem and the world says that's the first step in dealing with the problem. Acknowledge you have one. But they won't acknowledge that. They simply say we don't know. 
Who's in charge? We don't know. That's their answer. You guys are leaders of the faith of Israel, and you don't know if one of their prophets is from God? Now, Jesus didn't refuse to answer their question. He simply refused to endorse their hypocrisy. He wasn't being evasive. He was being pastoral and honest and putting the question back to them. People faced with the truth, not willing to acknowledge the truth, are reduced to silence, and they plead ignorance. Now, before they could leave, after Jesus asked even a more penetrating question than they had asked him, he told them a parable. And that's when we get into chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus began, apparently immediately began, to speak to this group in parables. So now we go to a powerful story. That's what a parable is. A parable is a common story, a well-known story, with a power powerful spiritual application to it. And this was a very common story. A man planted a vineyard, verse 1 says. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower, then rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. And finally, he had one left to send. It was his son, the son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance then will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus asked this question in the parable, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? What's he going to do now? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to someone else. So this story soon was evident, even to the leaders themselves, that it was about God and it was about them, the leaders of Israel. It was a common story, but it had a strong spiritual application. I remind you from a couple weeks back that Israel was always known as God's vineyard. Reading again from Isaiah chapter 5, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, planted in it the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked for good crops, but it only yielded bad fruit. Then the application, now you dwellers in Jerusalem, you men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I already have done? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? 
Now I'll tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there and I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. When Jesus began to tell the story of the vineyard, these leaders of Israel knew exactly what he was saying. God is the owner. Israel is the vineyard. By the way, in the temple in which they were standing, carved around the doors are beautiful vines and grapes and fruit and luscious leaves, all depicting the national symbol of Israel. When the spies went in for the first time to see the land flowing with milk and honey, what did they bring back to show that it was a good land? The biggest grapes you've ever seen. And Israel never forgot about that. The grapes were always a sign of the nation. So Jesus chooses a common story, but they knew exactly what was happening. The scripture talks about servants being sent by the owner and what is what do the renters do they revolt this what by the way was very common sometimes the owners were roman sometimes they were well um, uh, established israelites wealthy israelites who would be gone quite a while in fact according to leviticus chapter 19 you had to wait five years before you could come and demand fruit so it might be a very long period of time, and while you were gone, the renters would want to take over. So now, to, to maintain the right that this was your vineyard, you had to collect the harvest, at least within the five-year period. So servants are sent. They're coming to collect the harvest, and the renters beat them and send them away. And then they kill some. But notice, he keeps sending more and more and more. Who are the servants? The prophets. The prophets who came to preach to Israel. And they killed the prophets and abused the prophets. And the last of them was John the Baptist, the one who was just mentioned at the last part of chapter 11. So the story goes like this. God has been amazingly generous to Israel. He's the one who took the rocks out and fixed the ground and planted the choices of vines, my own people. He built a watchtower, which was anywhere between 15 to 20 feet high. Some were so elaborate that people lived in the bottom of them, but they were used to look for the enemy. The wall he put around to protect from enemies and animals coming in, and he dug a wine press, a shallow digging in the stone where they would trample the grapes, and then a trough that would go down to a larger vat where the wine would flow, and then sometimes they would store it in the watchtower. God did everything he could do for Israel to be prosperous. What more could I do? And all of that is told in the story. The almighty generous God also offers to man freedom of choice. You can choose to obey or choose to disobey. And they mistreated the servants. What an outrage. God has done so much for Israel. He has blessed them. And how did they treat his prophets? Maliciously. And took their lives. 
But he's persistent. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. This is a common story, a very familiar story, but what is uncommon is the persistence of the owner and his grace and his mercy to give them another opportunity and another opportunity and another opportunity. So he says, finally, verse 6, I'll send my son. Who's that? (laughs) He now goes from history to prophecy. Verse 6, I'll send my son. He's my only son. He's the son I love. Boy, that sounds a lot like the baptism, right? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Sounds a lot like the transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The one and only begotten son of God. You cannot mistake this. And as Jesus is telling the story, he's acknowledging who he is, and they've heard him preach. And they know exactly what he's saying. But notice what he says on Tuesday. They sent the son, last of all. They'll respect my son, but the tenants said to one another, verse 7, this is the heir, let's kill him. And when we kill him, the inheritance will be ours. And Jesus moves from history to prophecy because just in a few days, he'll be crucified for the sins of the world. So they took him, verse 8, and they killed him. And now what is the owner going to do? How is he going to respond? He's going to take away that vineyard from the people he gave it to and give it to another. Who is that? The Gentiles. And you read it in Romans because Israel turned away from God. You read it in the Gospels. You read it in the Acts first to Israel, but when they reject, the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the Gentiles, but they kept it all to themselves. And now God is forcing the message out. And what will he do? He will destroy, verse 9, his vineyard. This is about 30 A.D. and 40 years, four decades, 70 A.D., Titus and the Roman legions will come down and thoroughly destroy the city of Jerusalem. And all will be wiped out. But this is not just about God and the Israelite leaders. Did you know that this story is about God and us? about you and about me. I agree with Kent Hughes who said this parable is not meant to be a slice of ancient history alone, but it is to be a grid through which we view and examine our own relationship with God. That's pretty astounding. You say, how do you get to that? Well, notice verse 10. After indicting the leaders of Israel, he said to them, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the keystone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now that's an amazing quotation from Psalm 118, verse 22 through verse 23. It is one of the Hillel Psalms. Hillel is the abbreviation 
of the word praise, and we sang it today when we said hallelujah. Hallelujah is praise the Lord. Hallel speaks about the praise psalms, and these praise psalms were sung over and over during, get this, Passover week. And what week is the passion of Jesus Christ before he's crucified? Passover week. And what did they sing when he came Sunday into the city of Jerusalem with people shouting Hosanna and Hallelujah? They sang and quoted from Psalm 118. So they not only said it on Sunday, but they were singing it throughout the week in preparation for Passover And so when Jesus says, hey, guys, have you heard? (laughs) That would be like someone saying during Christmas week, hey, have you heard anyone sing Jingle Bells? Have I heard anyone sing Jingle Bells? That's all I hear. It's in the stores. It's on the car. It's at home. We hear it everywhere, right? The Christmas carols repeated over and over again. Jesus said, by the way, guys, have you heard? Of course you have. The Hillel? The stone that the builders rejected has become the keystone or the cornerstone. By the way, the temple wasn't totally finished. It took 40 years to build that thing, and when Jesus was walking through the temple, they were still going on. It was an ongoing building project. And so he might have pointed over and said, cornerstone. Here's a picture of a keystone, which might be the reference here. Sometimes we think of a cornerstone, and that is often laid in the foundation of a building to give it symmetry and to give it stability, right? Often cornerstones are merely cosmetic and symbolic, but years ago the true cornerstone helped give foundation to the building. But this particular word also can mean a keystone, and a keystone is that final stone that's put like in the top of an arch, to hold everything together. So on the one hand, a foundation stone gives stability and symmetry. A keystone holds everything together. And the psalmist is basically saying, here are the builders, and they're building the temple, and someone brought the keystone to be placed in, that final stone, and the expert builder said, we reject that stone. But it was perfectly designed to hold everything together. But the stone the builders rejected, the Lord has made it the keystone, the top stone. By the way, in the Old Testament, God is called a rock, and in the New Testament, Jesus is called a rock. This is marvelous in our eyes, verse 11. Yes, it is. What God has joined is so wonderful. You say, that's fine. We're still talking about Israel, aren't we? No. No, because who's the one who gave Mark all of his information to write out his gospel? We've said this before. It's well known that he is writing down the sermons of one called Peter. Now, if you have your Bibles, look at Uh, Acts chapter 4, just for a moment, Acts chapter 4. Because Peter is going to quote this same Hillel Psalm, Psalm 118, on multiple occasions. And here is one of them. Just weeks after Jesus 
has, been, has ascended. So the resurrection, 40 days, the ascension, and some brief short time after that, Peter and John are preaching in the temple, the same place where Jesus had the Q&A with the leaders. And they'd healed a lame man, and now they're being brought into the court. This is Acts 4, verse 5. Came to pass next day, the leaders bring Peter and John in before the high priest and the uh, elders, the Sanhedrin, same group. And notice verse 7. And when they'd set these apostles down in front of them, they asked them, by what authority are you doing this? Hey, this sounds kind of deja vu. Tell us your authority for healing this man. And I love Peter's response. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, so you got to love it. He says, rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we're being judged today for a good deed done to a helpless man, and by what means he has been made well, well, let me tell you. Be it known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy you crucified, okay, we're on the same page. God raised him from the dead, and this is how this man stands before you whole today. And then he says this, verse 11. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They just heard Jesus say that a couple weeks before. And now Peter is probably saying it with a twinkling in his eye. And then he steps back and says in verse 12, and neither is there salvation in any other name. There's only one name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And it, my friend, is the name of Christ. So this is about us. Because Peter's going to quote the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's like this is to be applied for all generations. My friend, who's in charge? That's the question. And we could say that God has lovingly sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. He has graciously sent his prophets to instruct us. So he sent his son to save us. He sent the prophets to instruct us. And if we... Reject or ignore these. We destroy ourselves just like the leaders of Israel did. Neither is there salvation in any other. My friend, it is simply Jesus. Now let me ask the question. Who's in charge of your life? May it be Jesus. Because all authority has been given to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so often we struggle in our own lives to determine who is going to dictate to us what we do and where we go. We often want to answer, I'm in charge. But that is such a foolish response because we are not omniscient. We are often selfishly foolish and will destroy ourselves if left to ourselves. But you've told us that you've sent your son to be Lord and Savior, the one with authority 
and the one who longs to deliver. May each one of us make sure that Jesus is in charge of our lives today. It's not enough to be religious. We can be religious and lost unless we submit to the authority and the saving power of Jesus, who is called the Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you.